Today we're going for a straight down the middle origin story, and this origin story is of MongoDB, the very successful open source NoSQL database. Well, open source with an asterisk, and they talk about it towards the end of the episode. Uh, this comes from the MongoDB podcast, which uh, I think I've featured it before, but they've just a very well run uh, podcast by Mike Lin uh, because it's someone's full time job, and it's uh, very unusual to see it executed so well. Um, I, d- I definitely had picked it as one of the best data podcasts out there. If you want to check out the full list, you can check out the Airbyte blog with uh, just just look for the staff picks uh, data podcast and you'll see it. Anyway, so here's the origin story of MongoDB. It's how did you start the company? How did you start MongoDB? Right. So when, when we started, actually, the name of the company was Tengen. And this was around 2008 or I forget the date maybe two months before that, I can't remember. The original, what we were really looking at the time is, is myself and our other co-founders, like Elliot and Kevin, you know, we've been working on various entrepreneurial projects and and just, we were seeing this repeated pattern where, you know, over and over, right, you know, new product idea, you start building the system, you know, at this point, I've been doing that for quite a long time. So kind of knew what the best practices were at the time, but it was always around that time frame, 2000, January, 2008, whenever it was. Uh, it just seemed like it was always a bit awkward. There was awkward and unesthetic, and it just seemed like there was a lot of duct tape and rubber bands. And even though those were best practices, Right. You know, you would talk to CTOs at the time, you know, and they would say things like, you know, putting memcached in front of databases is okay and roll your own sharding in front of MySQL or Postgres is okay. But it sort of isn't. It was because there wasn't a better way mm-hmm. and uh, at the time. And, you know, everything was that was really when the cloud computing and EC2 was really taking off. So it was very clear to us that cloud computing was the future and a lot of the traditional products weren't very cloud friendly. So if you have a database that scales vertically, right? So I can make it bigger, but you know, then it's a, it's a mainframe or a Sun 6500 or something like that. It's like, that's kind of the opposite of some, a cloud principle, which is kind of like horizontal scalability and elasticity, right? And then if you tried to do, do it the other way horizontally, it was usually kind of rolling your own when it came to operational databases and a lot of other things, but um, also just Agile development was the way to go then, you know, iterative development, but a lot of the old tools, and this isn't just databases, but languages, everything, weren't really designed for that because they were invented earlier, so it's not their fault. So we were just saying, like, gee, there's got to be a better way to, to develop applications. And this is both on the how to develop them, how to code them, and also on how to scale them and how to elegate how to run them in the cloud you know painlessly so our first concept was just we were going to do platform as a service so we were going to try to make a take do a fresh take on on the developer stack you know versus lamp and whatever else was common then and uh see what we could come up with so we were we started building a platform as a service system it was open source and uh, this was very early, so it was, I think when we went to beta, it was 
almost exactly the same time that, that Google's, was it Google App Engine? Yeah. It, it's the same time it came out it, to beta. Mm. So like our timing was, <laughs> it was like when they came out with it, I was like, oh, okay. We're, uh, <laughs> we're thinking, somebody there's thinking similar thoughts. And um, so that was fine. And then, but you know, a few months later, as we got a little further into it, I was thinking about it and I was like, I'm looking at things like AWS, where they have all these microservices, and they're sort of like, I'm not going to give you a full cloud platform. I'm going to give you some building blocks for your toolbox, and over time, I'll give you more. Mm -hmm. Because the scope is large, like, you know, so today they have a lot of services, mm -hmm. but, you know, this, you know, we're kind of 15 years later-ish. So if I give you a platform, though, it's sort of, Every, to give you everything you need, really, it's a big scope, and it's going to take quite a while to build it. So I think platform and service makes sense, but we got further into it, and we had something working kind of analogous to Google App Engine, or I guess Heroku was around back then. Mm -hmm. It just felt like, boy, to get this to true maturity, you know, because it's this, there's so many pieces that you would want in it. It's going to take a long time. This is It's going to take a decade or something. And... For a startup, you only have so much runway, and, and it's just like, and, and now even today, you know, platform as a service, I think is a good, is a valid notion and concept, but it's certainly not mature yet, right? The, the sort of more AWS style or um, microservices style approach, which you could do on all the big cloud platforms today. I just, I say AWS because I'm just kind of contrasting it with the, the PaaS vendors back in the day approach is still the dominant approach. So, so we've been building this and, and really, so what were we building, right? So we were trying to build something where you'd write some code, you know, you put it in Git and then you would just kind of click deploy, right? And it's sort of like it would deploy your app into our system in the cloud, try to handle scaling for you, including things like app server layer, app tier, you know, how many app servers should there be and load balancing for that. You know, all this is just happening automatically. You don't have to think about it at all. So it's, it's really trying to eliminate a lot of the operational overhead. You know, you know, it's just give you a platform. It's like, here's my app, you know, I've written all the code, deploy it and it just happens and you don't think about machines at all so this is a aspiration obviously like what we built like there's a little bit about machines like if we look at today with mongodb and sharding and things like that i mean we do have things like serverless but we also have things like sharding where you know as the person developing a system you know you're you know how many shards you have you know you can charge you can change it but it's not like it's just completely opaque in that sense and likewise in your replica sets you know you have control over how many copies of things there are and, but conception that was kind of the the path you know we were looking at you know completely elastic you know serverless too but as we looked at it we also wanted we were thinking about like what would we want if we were building a new app or system and it's like you know, there's there's certain features I wanted from the data layer, and if you really went to to something that was just 100% elastic, inf infinitely scalable, and so forth, you're getting into things that were more like the early Amazon Dynamo stuff, where they're more, at least back then, it's just more like a key value store, key document store, if you will. You know, you didn't have the rich database functionality, so we didn't want to throw out 
like tons and tons of data layer functionality. So our approach was it had some traditional elements to it, but then we tried to innovate on those. And it's like, yes, it's sharded, but it's auto sharded. Like you can, it'll do it. You don't have to write it yourself. And, and, and the replication, it's, you know, it's still replication, but it's a lot more sophisticated than the traditional just primary secondary model and, you know, uh, push button on a lot of these things. So, so we, you know, we've been building this platform. We had the app layer, data layer, and then it was just like, gee, this is such a large scope, you know, for a startup. You know, we didn't have many people at the time. And, and, and it was like, maybe I feel like, like we should just do one or the other. We should do this the app layer of the platform or the data layer, right? So if we look back at like Heroku, their data layer was Postgres, right? That's how they kind of um, reduced the scope. And then um, in the end, we decided to focus on the data layer because we were in beta with the platform. What was the platform called, by the way? Uh, Tengen. Tengen, okay. And then we called the data layer MongoDB. And um, since since it was sort of like a, a module or a component, like we didn't mind using a slightly cheeky name uh, because uh, it wasn't the name of the whole product at the time. But actually the background on the name is that the concept of Mongo is it's the middle of the word humongous mm -hmm. and, and half of the point of, was the horizontal scalability or easy scalability of the product. And then the other half is sort of developer productivity and agility. That's kind of where the name frame from. So it was the name of the subsystem. And then it's like, okay, that's all we're going to do now instead of the whole platform. So there was a pivot, if you will, which we did very early. Like things were going fine, like, but we were getting, we were getting very good feedback on the beta of the platform. But I was just thinking ahead and like how this plays out. And it was like, you know, this is a lot to do. And, uh, and also the rate of the, the rate of adoption of that model. So, but then thinking about, well, do we do the app layer or the data layer it, to kind of cut the scope? Like we were getting really good feedback on the data layer of the platform from the beta testers. So they were like, hey, I really like this. So that made help us feel like, okay, maybe let's just take the data layer. Let's unbundle it from this platform as a service thing and just make it a database, open source database you could run anywhere. And so we just kind of pulled it out of the code base so it was its own thing. And then it's like, well, I guess we need to write some drivers. So we spent like a month or two writing drivers and then we released like version 0.9. And then it was just all we were working on was MongoDB. And that was the company. What drove the decision to, to go open source? Hmm, that was gonna be my question, mm. thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It, it seemed pretty clear to us that the, the kind of traditional enterprise model was changing. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of things that were open source at the time. There's a lot of things that were SaaS. And then there's there some things that were freemium, right? That seemed like the, the options that were people were doing for new stuff were those three. They weren't the classic enterprise software. They were maybe freemium. Like, for example, I... I hope I don't get this wrong, but I think Splunk was, it's free, it was free for a small amount of data. Mm -hmm. And then it turned into more like enterprise software. And then, of course, you had any things that are SaaS or, or you know, maybe you call it infrastructure as a service, you pay for what you use. And then there's just the open source stuff. So we felt like, okay, we are a startup, you know, how do we get, you know, how do we get um, awareness, branding, adoption, 
people to try it as a startup. You know, they're very, very big companies, some of the biggest companies in the world, have databases. And, you know, how do we compete with them? How do we compete with Oracle? How do we compete with Amazon? Uh, things like this. And it seems like the open source is the asymmetry there that lets you compete with them. At the same time, it, you know, it was clear that things were moving into the cloud, right? So when we're thinking about open source licenses, you know, obviously you could go all the way down to BSD license. It's just free. And that's, that's great if you're, especially for community project, but you know, like we had investors and things like that. So it's like we had, we need a way to have revenue eventually. You know, we wanted sort of a license with more like a copy left. It's like GPL, but with everything moving into the cloud, the traditional GPL copy left doesn't really work. So this was clear enough to us in, even in 2008. So we made the license AGPL. I think it was one of the first um, projects that was AGPL. And at the, it seemed like that was the right way to go at the time. And I felt like I was CEO at the time, so I was pretty involved in the decision. So it seemed like, well, you know, if it's... If it's a problem, we can always just dual license it and with a, another license that's more flexible, right? You know, you can't go from a very... Permissive? Uh, yeah, permissive license to a less permissive license. Mm -hmm. But you can go the other way, right? Because you could still... You still keep the other license available if you liked it and you wanted... You know, you don't want to even go read the new one, uh, you know. But then you can throw... You could dual license and have something more permissive. So I thought, you know, that's... We can always go more permissive we can't go less permissive really and then three years ago we actually switched the license from agpl to this new license called sspl server-side public license which is it's super similar to agpl but if you if you did a diff on it it's only a couple sentences are different i think but uh it's we did this was a big decision um, that we didn't take lightly uh, because obviously the all the old releases are still available on AGPL, right? So uh, it was just for on a forward basis. It was like let's use this SSPL thing uh, we came up with, which is just basically saying you know if what you're building is just purely a database, like a general purpose database, then you're subject to the copy left. And this was coming out of like some analysis of AGPL and it was not totally clear that it did what the original intent was, that it totally worked legally. So we thought we needed to do that. That did push the product and the license into a slightly gray area where, you know, there's a classic definition of open source software, which is there's no restrictions on how you can use it. So, you know, with GPL, you know, you trigger the copy left by distribution. It's not how you're using it in your application. With this, it's actually, well, it sort of triggers on how you use it, right? So if you're doing something like Amazon RDS with the MongoDB source code, it would trigger. So it's offering it, offering your software as a service. Yeah, basically Mongo as a service, mm -hmm. if you offer that, you can do it with SSPL, but then you trigger the copy left and you have to release your code just like you do with GPL. Right, so you could still do something like CentOS version of Mongo if you wanted it in, as a service. But so it was really a response to things, you know, where, you know, the, um, the cloud providers, you know, not 
just Amazon. I'm not trying to pick on them, but you know, they're with RDS. You know, they're just taking every open source database and they're making a nice wrapped management layer on it. And then, but then it's like there's no, we don't have any direct customers anymore. Right. <laughs> and they wouldn't be paying us, I think. So um, that was the notion. So it's it gets gray then, and you know, a purist might say, "Well, that's not open source," but it's. I, I think in practice, it's completely practical. You know, if you're doing applications, it's you can definitely use it for free mm -hmm. um, and without any encumbrances. Um, so I think that whole the whole notion of you know how we define open source and the licenses thereof and the definition thereof. I think it's right now it's in a, a sort of a, a, a transitional stage where it needs to be iterated on because I love open source, but given this, these cloud models, um, and if you wanted to do anything that had a copy left, it just doesn't, the old ones don't work anymore. So, I mean, now we've seen since we did that, many other projects have done similar things. And, and I think from some of the standards bodies will, I would predict we're going to see some new things that are in the spirit of that, but we're definitely not available when we thought we needed it because we, we talked to them and it just, the, just the, the speed of motion wasn't working for us. So it's, I think in practice, basically nothing changes. You know, you're making an app, you want to use MongoDB, you, you know, you're, you can use it for free. Your code is your code. You don't have to, you don't have to release it or anything. You haven't triggered a copy left there. It's it, in the practice, I think it works great, but if you're open source specialist, theorist, you write licenses and stuff, you, you might quibble. That was fascinating. It was. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's very interesting always to look at the evolution of open source, right? You know, it's only about 15, 20 years old and things change. And it's pretty clear that every quote unquote open source company, once you get to some amount of scale, you start getting scared of Amazon. Uh, they eventually relicense to something like a SSPL or uh, BSL or whatever uh, other new uprising alternative license that may be. The open source purists get very, 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 very upset about that if you try to call that open source. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it can be avoided. Like this is a movement, uh, it's already shipped, has already sailed, and we need to broaden the sense of open source because that's not how people are treating it. You know, the language needs to be descriptive and not prescriptive.